good morning, Redemption Church, and welcome to our Jan term, kind of February term, in one of the most avoided, overlooked, and grumbled about books of the entire Bible. You're welcome. All right. Yes, we are in the book of Numbers, which feels like the biblical equivalent of watching paint dry or actually going to watch like marathon speed walkers that is not speed at the Olympics. It just people are like, oh, the book of Numbers. In fact, I was talking to somebody and they're like, hey, it's a new year. What are you going to be preaching at church? And I said, the book of Numbers. And they're like, oh, cool. Yeah. Like they asked me where we were going on family vacation. And I'm like, we're going to Moses Lake, you know? And they're like, oh, okay, that's. Uh. No matter where I pick, I will get in trouble with somebody. I mocked Fargo once. You know what that got me? A trip to Fargo in the dead of winter. Legit. They took me there just to prove it's rad. So you can't win. Maybe I'm going to go to, I'm be going to Moses Lake, aren't I? You're going to take me to Moses Lake now. This is great. This is fantastic. So anyway, yes, the book of Numbers, right? It's kind of this place where we just go, is there really much to be gained there? And I get it, right? Like if I'm watching a movie and it doesn't draw me in in the first like 10 to 15 minutes, I'm punching out, same way with the book. If the first couple of chapters don't grip me, I'm like, I'm putting this down, I'm gonna do something else. And I think that's kind of the approach. Like we think, oh, the book of Numbers is what you read when you can't sleep. And so it's like God's version of counting sheep and then we're done and you fall asleep to it and that's it. But I can't help but think that of all the works of literature throughout the ages that God could put into his Bible, of the 66 pieces of literature that make up our Bible, number four is this particular document. And, and it tells this history of things that we're meant to learn. And what we're going to learn, especially next week, is that the New Testament, uh, it often refers to this particular part of the story because there's tons of lessons to be learned. But I want to kind of point our attention to even something that Paul does uh, when he's writing to a church in Corinth. It's this group of Christians, and they're going through all sorts of things. They're divided relationally. They are digressing spiritually. They're drifting morally. And so he writes this letter to them to get them back on track. Because they've lost the love for God. They've lost the love for one another. They've lost the love for their enemies. They're not fulfilling what the gospel is really all about, to make a new community of people that touch all the communities of the world in positive ways. They're failing to do that. And so Paul writes this letter called 1 Corinthians. And he's trying to address all those problems to right the ship, in essence. And he says this in chapter 10. He says, I don't want you to forget, dear brothers and sisters, about our ancestors in the wilderness long ago. And remember, we learned that in Hebrew, this book is called In the Wilderness. It's not Numbers, it's In the Wilderness. So he's talking about In the Wilderness. He says, all of them were guided by a cloud that moved ahead of them, and all of them walked through the sea on dry ground. In the cloud and in the sea, all of them were baptized as followers of Moses, yet God was not pleased with most of them, which I think is funny. All of them went, most of them he was frustrated at, all right? And he says, from this, their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Here's the key. He says, these things happened as a warning to us, right? He says, so that we would not crave evil things as they did or worship idols as some of them did, nor should we put Christ to the test as some of them did and they died from snake bites and don't grumble as some of them did and then were destroyed by the angel of death. These things happened to them as examples for us. They were written down to warn us who live at the end of the age. And so I read this and I'm like, bodies scattered, idols worship, snakes biting, an angel of death destroying, bros and babes dropping in the desert, Christ is mad, like, whoa, this is where? It's all in the book of Numbers. 
I feel like the grandfather coming in with his grandson in the whole Princess Bride thing. I'm going to read you a story of a great adventure, right? That's this story. It's all here. And so we don't want to just be like, oh, yeah, whatever. We want to go like, oh, this journey into the wilderness is a cautionary tale. It's God's do not trespass sign for life. And so with that, I'm going to go ahead and pray for us this morning. And as I get ready to do this, I want to remind you, we have notes uh, in our app. You can follow along, fill in blanks. All the details are going to be in there. But, but I want to pray for us this morning because I think there's some things that we're going to look at that do touch where we all tend to struggle. I know I do. And from this, we certainly need God's mercy, which will be a theme here toward the end. Mercy for the things of life. And so if you would go ahead and join me right now, that'd be fantastic. Jesus I thank you that you give us lessons to be learned in pieces of literature in your Bible that are hard to wrestle with at times. And maybe on the surface we go, ah, I don't know if this is worth my time. And yet when we dig deep, when we think, when we learn to read this, we see that there are plenty of things to learn because we know that human nature is what it is and it just fulfills patterns. And yet you and your grace, you step in to disrupt those patterns. And so we look to you this morning to teach us and to guide us and to show us. We thank you for your generosity toward us and your love for us. In your good name, amen. So the book of Numbers is a long book, but we are only spending five weeks in this book because I love you that much, all right? So we're not gonna spend a ton of time, but what we're looking at is, again, these major themes. So we can't touch every detail, hit every story, but we're doing this because, again, there's parallels between their journey in the wilderness and our journey in life, because life, in many ways, is like a wilderness, too. And if we receive it properly, it can shape us. And if we resist it, if we're antagonistic against it, if we're frustrated by it, it can actually harden us. It can decay us, and it can kind of break down our potential in life. Now, if I take us back to last week for just a minute, uh, we saw that there's kind of a pattern. When we get high orbit over numbers, we see there's a pattern to the whole story. And to remind us of the story, uh, we have the book of Exodus, where Moses rolls into Egypt, and God's like, I'm going to take my people, get them out of here, take them to their ancestral home, bring them into freedom. That's kind of the storyline that's going on. That's what we're looking at. And so they're moving from Egypt to promised land. And, and yet in this, that whole thing is the exodus. The exodus isn't just, hey, they got out of the borders of Egypt, now they're exiled, right, into freedom finally. No, they have to get to their home for the exodus to be truly complete. So they're not free at this point. They're still kind of midway between things. And so from that, we said, hey, there is this structure to the book of Numbers where it begins in the wilds of Mount Sinai where God gives them the covenant and the commandments and the ark and the tabernacle and all those kinds of things. It's going to start there. And the first 10 chapters of Numbers are just three weeks there at Mount Sinai. But then they're getting ready for a road trip. And the road trips we're going to look at today, the first of two. And then they're going to end up in Paran for a long, long period of time, take another road trip, and then they're going to go to the plains of Moab. And I love that they're going to Moab because my Jeep is a Moab Jeep, so I love they're going to the plains of Moab. Fantastic. And they're going to be there for about six months, and then they go into the promised land. That's kind of the structure that we have. And then in that, we learn that when God is establishing things in those three weeks, he wants there to be this way that they both make camp and they march. And so when they make camp, God is at the center of the camp where the tabernacle is, and then the Levites guard the tabernacle, and then everybody fans out into this giant cross which is sort of representative of uh, kind of a future cross for the sake of the world. This is the kind of the prototype 
of a people of God to change the world. Eventually, there is this person who is God who changes the world on a cross. And so you already see symbolism. We're going to see lots of symbolism, especially next week, of these crossovers between Christ and numbers. So the symbolism there is God is to be the center of your life just as God is at the center of the camp. But then they break camp and they march. And when they march, then God leads them. God goes in a pillar of cloud and fire. There's an Ark of the Covenant, which is the covenant and and commandments of God, and then the Levites and all the people, and then they march in this pattern. So they camp a certain way, they march a certain way. And the theme in which everything they do is about purity, right? That they're to be a different, distinct type of people as they are going to the promised land because God is going to use them for very special and distinct things. And so for that first three weeks of Numbers, Man, these guys, they are innovating, they are slaying, they are obeying, right? They are on top of it. Everything God tells them to do, they do. But now we move into week two, and week two goes from obeying God to testing God. Just in a three-week span of time, things begin to shift. And so they're there in the camp. We see this pillar of cloud and fire begins to drift to the north. And so everybody pulls up stakes, and it starts with this first point in your notes. The family road trip begins. They're piling into the station wagon, and they're rolling. Chapter 10, verse 33. We learned last week as we left off that they marched for three days after leaving the mountain of the Lord with the ark of the Lord's covenant moving ahead of them to show them where to stop and rest. Wherever the ark set out, Moses would shout, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered. Let them flee before you. And when the ark was set down, he would say, Return, O Lord, to the countless thousands of Israel. So again, I want you to just think kind of concretely for a minute about the pattern. You have tens of thousands of people. Day one, they line up and they march. And at the end of the day, they break into camp and they have to fan out in all directions as this giant cross. And then the next morning, pick up, they march. That's day two, they plant. Day three, pick up, they march, they plant. That is a ton of work, right? There's a lot of effort to set up archaic old tents, to build fires for the camp, to get everything aligned, to get the Levites around the tabernacle, to set up the tabernacle. The thing is huge, Imagine that. You're only going to be there for hours, but you got to set it up and then tear it back down the next day, right? But in this, there's some other things that I think are really important. Like the image is very ceremonial, and it's very visual. It's this idea that, again, when they get ready to go, they, they have this kind of decree from Moses, like, God, go before us, clear the way. You're the plow. You're going to go and clear out any enemies that are in the path. And then when they stop, it's like, God, come back to the camp. Be with your people. Bring us comfort. Bring us security. Bring us joy. Here's the thing about this that I want to be really clear about, though. In this visual demonstration of cloud, fire, ark, God's presence coming and going with the people, um, they are not operating under a premise that we operate our faith under. In other words, our faith is a faith of, in fact, faith. Our relationship to God is one predicated on faith. For these people, and I want you to track with me for a minute, for them, this is not faith in God, it's the fact of God. For them, God is a fact. So let me, let me unpack this for a second. Um, in our Christian experience and expression, uh, we operate a lot under the idea that, you know what, while I can't see God, I don't audibly hear from God, there's not this concrete objective evidence that God is there, I place my trust 
in that reality. I believe that this book, though ancient, contains God's words for my life to do what he wants me to do. And so we have this sense of kind of risk and hope and belief in something that's intangible to us. But that's not their existence. They're not wondering if the God of Israel is real. They're not speculating and hoping that that may be true. No, God is a concrete daily fact, visually and audibly in their midst. Right? So good little Jewish boys and little Jewish girls, they wake up in the morning, they put on their, their little slippers, they look outside their tent, and boom, there's God materialized before them. They're not like, eh, I'm not sure that might be something other than God, the big pillar in the middle of the sky over the tent. Right? No, that's what it is. And, and then they think about everything they've seen. They've watched the plagues of Egypt. They've passed through the miracle of the Red Sea. They've been at Mount Sinai when the the smoke and fire descends and lightning and booming voice and all of this, right? So there's no question marks. Is God real? I'm not sure. There's no existential crisis for the people of God in the camp, right? And and here's then why this is important for us to understand. Um, Much has been given and therefore much will be required. It's one thing when you're speculating about whether God exists as to whether you're going to trust and obey him. It's another thing when you know matter-of-factly, without a shadow of a doubt, he exists, and then you're wrestling with faith and trust and and obedience in the midst of that. See, I want to kind of set that as the expectation because that's going to help us understand then the rest of the story when we go, man, it seems like God is really harsh with them. Right, right. Because there isn't a question mark for whether they should obey and trust as though, man, God is a reality or not a reality kind of on the fence thing, right? If anything, they had struggles with denial in the face of the undeniable, right? That's going to be their battle. And, and if I kind of modernize this, I mean, imagine like you're at home, you're by yourself, you suddenly feel like this temptation to do something that you know is wrong, Right? But you're like, oh, but I want to do it. And then out of nowhere, God suddenly shows up next to you on your couch. He's like, what you thinking? You're like, then I'm going to do something dumb, you know? And he's like, sure you want to do that? I'm like, yeah, with you sitting right here, it would be rad, right? Like, that's the space that these people are going to be in. Like, he's right there in the center of the camp, and they're like, yeah, we think we might want to do something dumb. That's going to be kind of the story of the day, right? And so this takes us then into the next thing in your notes— when the family station wagon has a blowout 10 miles into the trip, right? Because this is a family trip. And I've been in that place. I have been with Ellen's family in a station wagon on a trip 10 miles outside of town. Everything falls apart, and the rest of the day was terrible, right? Every part of the trip just fell apart after that. That's kind of what's going to happen with Israel here. So they're three days in. They've packed, marched, packed, marched, all that kind of stuff, right? And we're going to chapter 11, and it says, Soon the people began to complain about their hardship, right? Just three days in. And this is the first of three issues we're going to see on the road trip, right? And and here's what you got to remember. This trip is only going to be two to three weeks, right? To get from where where they're at in Mount Sinai to the promised ancestral home, it's like two to three weeks if they keep their mouth shut. But if they don't keep their mouth shut, this can turn into something far, far longer, right? So that's the first issue. Well, then it says in verse 4, there was the foreign rabble, which I think is great, the foreign rabble, who were traveling with the Israelites, and they began to crave the good things of Egypt, and the people of Israel also began to complain, right? 
And so somehow they ended up with this entourage. It's like Israelites plus some other people are like, hey, that big group's going someplace. Let's join in, right? And they join in and they start to grumble and kind of lead Israel into the grumbling as well. And so what do they say? Oh, for some meat. Love some good carnivores. All right. They said, oh, we remember the fish that we used to eat for free in Egypt, which is funny. You were enslaved, but the fish was free. That's good enough. All right. Oh, they said, oh, when we had cucumbers and melons and leeks and onions and garlic. These guys were bougie in their appetites here. But now our appetite is gone, and all we see is this manna, right? So Moses heard all of the family standing in the doorway of their tents whining, <laughs> which is great. Now, this word manna, we, we, it's kind of a tricky thing because it's just a transliteration of the Hebrew. We don't have an English equivalent for the word. In fact, some commentators, I love it, you know what they call it? The stuff. They just call it the stuff, you know what I mean? But if you take the stuff, you can bake it into cakes and breads, and it has kind of the sweet flavor to it and everything else. So basically, when you think manna, manna think grateful bread here in town. That's really what it is, right? The dilemma, though, is Israel and their non-Jewish entourage, they're already sick of the trip and they're sick of the menu, and so it's ungrateful bread for them. That's their space, that's their attitude. And then you get to chapter 12 and you see a third issue. They're at Hazaroth and Miriam and Aaron, which is uh, Aaron is Moses' brother and Miriam's his sister-in-law, they criticize Moses because he had married a Cushite woman. All you need to know about this is basically racism is alive and well in all times, all places, with all people, including them. They don't like that he has this Cushite wife, and so they're complaining. But more deeply, they're complaining about his leadership, and that God has made him the leader. And so they said, hasn't the Lord spoken through us as well? It wasn't just Moses. He also spoke through us. And if you go back to Exodus, you realize that Moses had a speech impediment. He was very insecure to speak, and so the Lord spoke to Moses. Moses would whisper to Aaron, and Aaron would tell Pharaoh. Right? So Aaron's like, whoa, wait a minute. I did the talking. And Miriam's, that's right, honey. You did the talking. You're the man. Right? So, and, and she, you're going to see, she's kind of probably the one driving that a little bit. She's going to get things in trouble. And I'm not just being a misogynist. You'll see in a minute. Right? So she's kind of telling her guy, like, hey, man, we got to take Moses on. This, you're, you're a better man than this. You're a better leader than this. And so there's this whole mess and everything else. And it's not just questioning Moses. It's fundamentally questioning God. And they're three days into the trip, right? Like, uh, no, but at this point, they're a little longer in. There's some stuff that's happened in between. But, but here's the thing, right? They're barely into the journey, and you're already seeing the ugly. And the journey isn't just a journey back to their homeland. The journey more deeply is a journey about their growth, their development, their letting go of their old way of life, embracing a new way of life, letting go of the gods of Egypt that have trained them in all sorts of bad ideas, and now embracing the message of the one true God of Israel that wants to teach them about loyalty and love and devotion and sacrifice for the greater good of the world. And you know what? Uh, they're already faltering on all of this. All of the lessons are falling to the wayside. Now, on the surface of those three issues that we've just read about, uh, we could say, well, what they were raising fundamentally was resisting hardship or resenting the fact that they were experiencing hardship, the want or desire of good things, and then resisting leadership. Like, those were the three buckets. If you took the, the complaints and all that stuff, those are where it really falls. But think about what Paul told us earlier. All of these things were recorded long ago about our ancestors in the wilderness to warn us and to be examples for us. 
So while we could just kind of, from an interpretive perspective, go, well, these were the three kind of problems specifically, if you take these and you distill them down more principally, uh, you're going to actually see that at the core of this, what they were really raising was this issue of we want certainty, we want comfort, and we want control. Right? Those are the three principal sins of the people. And, and this is set against the backdrop of God is physical, he's present, he's active, and yet in the midst of that, they're saying, we want certainty, we want comfort, we want control. If you take those three things and see them as a foundation, they're the foundation which on the top of that foundation rests the idea of faithlessness or unfaithfulness, Right? Like, they see what God wants. They see what God expects. They see how God delivers. And they're like, yeah, no, not good enough for us. We want things our way, in our timeline, according to our desires. And so you got to remember, again, what is the hot take that God has had for these people since the beginning? He's like, listen, I love you. I've chosen you. I've called you. I've rescued you. I'm pouring into you. When I pour into you, sometimes it's going to be rough and tough, and you're going to feel stretched, but it's for your good because I'm going to do amazing things with you if you listen to me. And so what God, in essence, was really trying to drive them to is I am your certainty, I am your comfort, and I'm in control. But now they're like, eh, maybe we want to dictate now our sense of certainty our sense of comfort, and we want to be in control. So they're moving from trusting and obeying to rebelling and just kind of wanting to plot their own destiny. And, and when I was looking at that this week, I'm like, man, that is so much what we battle with too. Like these three things I battle with. I want certainty. I want comfort. I want control. Now, when life is good, when it's just sailing and everything's going right, it feels pretty easy to trust God. And I'm not sure we're really trusting God as much as like, hey, we just don't have any problems. I got nothing to complain about, right? What I think is trusting God is sometimes just rolling with the good times. But when things get difficult, when you start to feel the pain of life, when you're out, quote, in the wilderness, and it's harsh, and you're expectations of life, your aspirations in life, the dreams you had in life aren't aligning, that is exactly when you and I are tempted to be like, okay, God, now I'm going to take control. I want my comfort my way, and you're not delivering on this. I want certainty, and you're leaving me in mystery, so I just go, got to grab a hold of life now, and I got to dictate things under my terms for my way of wanting things to be perceived. And so from that, we begin to drift into faithlessness, into frustration, and forcing what we want we're really, in many ways, very tempted to be like Israel. Now, I want to be clear. I want to make a little bit of a segregation here because I want to be intellectually honest. Um, I think that challenge for us is a little bit more understandable because we are doing life uh, where we don't see and hear God in audible, tangible ways. Uh, this is why I had us do the reading out of Hebrews this morning. Faith is about things hoped for, and it's hope in things unseen. So it is hard sometimes to trust God, right? To say, all right, God, I know that you've got a plan, even though I don't get it, and I'm going to trust you. It can be hard because, again, we can't see him. We don't hear him. He doesn't skywrite every day at 5 o'clock to be like, hey, just so you know, I'm still here, right? We, we don't get that. And so sometimes we seek certainty, control, and comfort. But Israel, again, they're operating not under faith, but under fact. God is concretely there, and as he's concretely there, they're like, nope, we're going to do our own thing anyway. 
that whole endeavor leads to the next thing in your notes when dad pulls the car over and everyone gets a spanking, right? Because this is what happens. You go on a road trip, then you have some blowout, things get tense, everybody gets dumb, and dad's like, okay, that's it. We're pulling over. Everybody's in trouble. Now, in the story, there's kind of two parents. Uh, Yahweh, God, he's the dad, and weirdly enough, Moses is a bit more like mom. And I'm not just making that up. I'm going to read this to you, and you're like, oh, he is kind of like mom. That's kind of his role in this whole thing, right? So going back kind of with the story and everything else, we see that Moses is getting fatigued by all of this, and there's some interaction between Moses and God, and this all kind of comes out in the disposition. So again, Moses heard all the family standing at the doorway, and they were whining, and the Lord became extremely angry well, Moses was very aggravated. So that's kind of like mom in the car. She's aggravated, but dad's angry. We're pulling over, right? And so Moses said to the Lord, why are you treating me, your servant, so harshly? Have mercy on me. What did I do to deserve the burden of all of these people? Did I give birth to them, right? Did I bring them into the world? Why did you tell me to carry them in my arms like a mother carries a nursing baby? So he's the mom in the car, and God's the dad. He says, how can I carry them to the land you swore to give our ancestors? Where am I supposed to get meat for all these people? Because remember, we want meat and leeks and onions and garlic and something really, really incredible, right? Like, where am I supposed to do this and get this meat, right? They keep whining, saying to me, give us meat. I can't carry these burdens and these people by myself. The, the load is just too heavy. If this is how you intend to treat me, just go ahead and kill me, he says. Do me a favor and spare me this misery. So Moses is at wit's end, right? And he's like, knife, pistol, or noose? I don't care, but if you want me to keep mothering these people, I can't keep doing this, right? And I get it. But instead of taking Moses' life, God's like, okay, I'm gonna put on public display a sense of discipline because of their dumbness, Moses. That's what I'm gonna do instead. And so the three things were what? They wanted certainty, they wanted comfort, and they wanted control. And so God's gonna address all three. To the issue of certainty, we pull back up to chapter 11, verse 1. They were complaining about their hardship, and the Lord heard everything they said. Then the Lord's anger blazed against them, and he set a fire to rage among them, and he destroyed some of the people on the outskirts of the camp. This reminds me of, like, the pack of gazelles and then the lion. It's like the gazelles that are slowing on the edges, like, oh, bro, you're going to die, man. So the people on the outer edge of the camp, they're the ones who are going to go. And I think about that like the next time this happens, I bet the people on the outskirts are like, quick, just <laughs> get to the middle, man. Hey, Jimmy, you should go out there. Check it out. You know, like, like just you, let the lion get you. But, you know, so it's kind of like that. But here's the imagery. Remember, where does God dwell among the people? At the center of the camp. Where did the judgment happen? On the edge of the camp. There's always a symbolism. The far you get, further you get from the center where God is the center of your life, you're always at risk. You're always going to do things that will put you at risk. And so there's always parallel to the lessons that we can learn for our good. And so God spanks them to break them and remind them of the fact that their certainty desires are sinful desires. And so it's meant to snap that spirit. Next, we see there is the issue of comfort. They wanted meat from Egypt. And so they hear the whining. The Lord became angry. And so God says to Moses, here's what you need to tell the people. Purify yourselves, for tomorrow you will have meat to eat. You were whining, and the Lord heard you when you cried, oh, for some meat, we were better off in Egypt. Oh, it was so good. 
It says, now the Lord will give you meat and you will have it to eat. And it won't just be for a day or two days or five days or 10 days or 20 days. You will eat it for a whole month until you gag and are sick of it. So you remember those stories where you got caught smoking and your dad's like, now you got to smoke the whole pack in an hour? That's this. You want quail? I'll give you quail. I'll give you plenty of quail, right? You'll get meat. And he says, here's why. For you've rejected the Lord who is here among you. Again, God is a fact. It's not just faith in God. It's the fact of God. He's there among them, and they're still doing this. They're whining, right? And so they said, oh, man, why did we ever leave Egypt? What they're saying is, God, it was better without you. We would rather have fish and know you in Egypt, right? That was better than you. So you can see the confrontation here, right? And so the Lord set a wind that brought quail from the sea and let them fall all around the camp for miles in every direction. There were quail flying about three feet above the ground. Would that not freak you out? Like, I was just thinking about this, like just right here, just like a swarm of quail, storming quail everywhere. I would be creeping out. I would be like, Moses, just take my life now, God. I don't want to be in this quail storm anymore, all right? So the people went out and caught quail all day and through the night and into the... Quail hunting at night would be super weird. All right, that's just sidebar. All right, so it says, no one gathered less than 50 bushels, and then they spread the quail all around the camp to dry. But while they were gorging themselves on the meat, and it was still in their mouth, the anger of the Lord blazed against the people, and he struck them with a severe plague. And so that place was called Kibroth Hatavah to this day, which means graves of gluttony. I love that, man. Love their names. They're like, what was it? It is gluttony. A lot of people died. So what should call it? Graves of gluttony. All right, let's roll. So they did this, and they called it this because they were buried there, the people were, who had craved the meat from Egypt. Now, again, I want to be clear. It wasn't just that they craved meat. They craved the meat of Egypt. You have to understand there's, again, symbolism here. The meat of Egypt, the whole system of Egypt was loaded with the gods, right? So Pharaoh was a god. There was a god over fish and a god over cattle and a god over crops. And the idea of the meat of Egypt is getting back to, we want the gods of Egypt who fed the Egyptians. They gave us, those gods gave us meat. You're giving us the stuff. We don't want the stuff. We're sick of the stuff. We want the gods of Egypt and their provision of food and supply and everything else. So again, this is very idolatrous in that sense. And so here, there's both binging and purging when it comes to the sin of comfort, and God is meant to, or seeking to drive that out of them. So he confronts the second thing. And then there was the issue of control, right? Criticism of Moses for his leadership. And there, the Lord was very angry with them, and he departed. As the cloud moved from above the tabernacle, there stood Miriam, her skin as white as snow from leprosy. This is why I say Miriam probably was more like, hey, Aaron, you got to take on your brother. You're the right guy. He's the wrong guy. And God's like, okay, I heard all of that. And so she was flaky, so God makes her flaky for a little bit. That's what this comes down to, right? I'm bad sometimes. Okay, so anyway, um, but, but notice there's this other thing that you probably would skip over, which is it says, and the cloud moved from above the tabernacle. Right, moved away from where Miriam was, because remember, she's a part of the guardianship of the tabernacle. So it moves, and then she's left under curse. Right? And, and God's trying to get to this thing, and this third issue of rejection of himself, he's like, listen, here's what life is like if I leave you. You're, you're complaining about this, you're whining about that, you're talking about leaders and who I've instilled and everything else, but if I leave, 
It's, it's curse, it's plague, it's hardship. And the thing about God you will see so often in the Old Testament is he's like, I'll give you what you want if you really want it. You want life without me? We can do that, but it's going to lead to your ruin. And so there is, again, a symbolism in here. As God's presence departs, curse begins to kind of envelop there in Miriam. And it's meant to get everybody's attention. Like, oh, wait, this is what happened when God's, God splits. And so what you see in the three events is this blatant kind of testing of God, this flagrant assault on the undeniable presence and faithfulness of God, and even a reminder that, man, what's going to get in our way so often is the desire for certainty, comfort, and control apart from God. Now, we could look at some of this, especially as Westerners in the modern world, and go, okay, I get all of that, but boy, it really seems that God was severe and swift and aggressive and violent in the response and is that okay? Shouldn't we be troubled by that? Because I know I am. Just as a Bible reader, I'm like, wow, does the punishment fit the crime kind of thing? Well, two things. It doesn't completely ease us of all the questions that we may have, but two things I want to emphasize. The first is just reminding, again, when God is physically in your midst doing miracles and you're still pulling these stunts, that's kind of why you have the response that you do, right? In other words, they were very in his face, right to his face, and that, again, kind of shows a severity that's different. But the second thing, and this is going to be a little bit weirder, I believe that God acts as he does, as swiftly and harshly as he does, not to be cruel, but actually to be merciful. To be merciful. And it's kind of a Machiavellian mercy in some ways. Because here's the thing. Uh, what I know about human nature, including my own, and studying everybody else, because I watch, right? Um, we as human beings have a tendency, if you give us an inch, we'll take a mile, right? So, so as soon as we go into a spiral, we tend to just do really good at keep spiraling, to stay in the misery, to stay in our vice, to stay in our bitterness, to stay in our thing that's controlling us or whatever else. And so that's what we call it rock bottom. And sometimes rock bottom is a long way down and takes a great deal of time with lots of collateral damage and all kinds of life decay in the midst of that. And I believe God is looking at Israel and he's like, okay, I see you're complaining today. We're gonna end this today. I see you're griping about food. In 30 days, this is gonna be wrapped up. I see Miriam is griping about leadership issues with Aaron. You know what? We're gonna wrap this up in a week. In other words, he's nipping in the bud rapidly not to be cruel but to be merciful so that it doesn't contaminate more, make things worse, and have a way bigger problem. In fact, this leads to the final point in your notes this morning. Mercy, not judgment, is really the end of the story. And it's the purpose for the story as it's being told. Now, I'm gonna share something with you that this is just my personal opinion that is probably a conviction, but my conviction, and I know people are gonna disagree with me, and that's okay, but my conviction is that the judgment of God is less about being punitive and it's more about being restorative. In other words, God isn't like, you know what, you're ticking me off and I just can't wait to kill people today. I really believe what God is up to is like, man, I, I, I want relationship with you. I want healing for you. I, I want completeness for you. I want to bless the world through you. And so, man, I'm gonna do some things on the front end to correct you swiftly so you don't linger and wallow in your misery for a longer period of time. In fact, it's my opinion, when I read throughout the entire Bible, there's a pattern. And the pattern just repeats itself over and over. The first one it comes to God is that he's very patient with our faults, right? Patient. But after it goes on long enough, what he does is says, okay, now it's time for punishment. 
but the punishment, he wants it to be as swift as possible because he's a good parent that loves. And then when we go, I realize, I see, I'm sorry, I repent, I want to stop and everything else, he immediately, then he pardons. And he pardons because he wants relationship. And so patient, and then there's punishment, but it's unto pardoning. So it's not like God's chief characteristic is, I'm just just, and I got to just level everybody in justness. But rather, he's like, I'm merciful. Now, in this, I'm just, but chiefly, I want to dispense mercy. And the quicker they change, the quicker I can do that, and that's where we want to be. And so that's the heart of this whole thing. God did not say, hey, Israel, I'm going to take you away from Pharaoh, that thug, so I can take you to the desert and become your new thug. He didn't do that. He's like, no, I want to use you and restore you. And so in the big picture, this journey into the wilderness is in fact a journey. It's where Israel is unlearning their bad behaviors, their poor cravings, their misguided faith and trust and obedience, and they're learning a new way with new life and new truth and new direction, but that is a process. And in the process, man, sometimes it's painful. But it's painful to be purposeful. Because in this, God is more interested in mercy than judgment. Something the Bible likes to say repeatedly after this. And so, while we read all of these really, really harsh things and all of this strong reaction, sort of sprinkled throughout is God's care, provision, and restraint. So remember that first issue? They wanted certainty, and so they complained. They complained against God's plan. And so God brings judgment on the outskirts of the camp, but then Moses prays, and instantly it stops. To stops. And even that's a lesson, right? Where Moses is like, no, I love these people. I care for these people. I want to give myself for these people. I'm putting them ahead of me, so God, I'm coming to you to stop this. That is something even for us to learn. Like, oh yeah, life is about giving ourselves away, looking up for others, not just ourselves, which is certainly a lesson that God wanted to teach Israel. And then he swiftly stops. And that's his mercy. He could have just blazed to the center of the camp and wiped out everybody. But it stops. Then there was the second issue of comfort, and they complained about God's provision for them. They're like, man, it sucks. We want Egyptian fish. And the judgment is swift, and the gluttons are put into the grave swiftly, but then instantly God's like, okay, everybody back in the station wagon. We're still going to the land of promise. In other words, I'm not giving up on all of you. I'm not going to just leave you in the desert. No, I'm sticking with the plan, right? And so they move on the next day after everything happens, and his mercies are new every morning. And then there was the third issue with Aaron and Miriam. And she's turned white, and God's presence drifts from the camp for a little bit. And then Moses prays, God, let's not have this judgment go down this way. And God's like, no, you're right. So put Miriam outside of the camp for a week. And then after a week, she can be brought back into the camp, which means we're also not going to have the camp move while she's out of the camp, which is a sign and symbol of restoration. We're all going to wait for this one until this one is brought back in, and then we all go together. And that, again, is God's mercy. And so while the camp is melting down and there's all these things and God is swift in his judgment, the purpose is for restoration in all these different events. There was one other thing at the center of the road trip section that happens that shows the mercy of God as well, right? So the camp keeps making all these poor decisions. Moses is actually having a mental health crisis. That's really what it is. When you want to die, that's a mental health crisis. It's not just him whining. He's struggling. He's tired, rejected, frustrated, suicidal, hopeless, everything else. And there God shows mercy both to Moses and to the entire camp. Right in the center of this whole section, God talks to Moses, and then Moses goes out to the people, and he reported the Lord's words to the people. 
It says, he gathered the 70 elders and stationed them around the tabernacle. And then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to Moses. And then he gave the 70 elders the same spirit that was upon Moses. They've been selfish, they've been scandalous, they've been sinful, but in his mercy, God's still like, man, I gotta bring these people along. I wanna deposit the spirit of more people to share the load with Moses and to bring them into greater healing. So even in that, God could have again just said, you know what, I'm gonna find another group. But instead he's like, no, I'm making the investment because I told them I would do this in them. I made them a promise and I will keep it. So chapter 12 closes, says, then they left Hazaroth, and camped in the wilderness of Paran. And there they will stay for a long, long time. But it just shows that God is still on the move. And he keeps his promises toward his people. Even when his people are faithless to him, he is faithful to them. Because God is committed to investing into us, to building us up, to transforming us, to shaping things in us that are more like him so he can then deploy us into the world to remind the world while he does have standard and he is a just God, he is a merciful God, a gracious God, a loving God, an inviting God, a caring God, and an invested God who so loves the world. He gives and he gives and he gives even of himself. Let's go ahead and close our eyes right now, bow our heads. And as we do, I I just want to encourage anybody who may be watching or in the room and you're not a follower of Jesus, we say here, life is better with Jesus. Life is always hard, but I believe it's better with Jesus even in the hardness of life, the wilderness of life. If you're a person that's like, man, I'm not of that persuasion, I'm not a Christian, but maybe today you feel like you want to become one, you want to start following Jesus, uh, that for you is a prayer where you say, God, um, I know I'm very much like these Israelites, and, and I want comfort, and I want certainty, and I want these things that are natural to the human condition, but I want those from you, not from me, from your hand, not from my hand. I know I've been going my own way, doing my own thing. I've been walking in life different from you, but I want to follow you now. You make that your prayer in your way. He hears you, brings you into the family, begins to work in your life in a whole new way. And if you make that your prayer today, in our app, there's a tile that says, hey, I've decided to follow Jesus today. If you would tap that before you leave today or maybe sometime later this afternoon, let us know you made that decision. We would love that. For the rest of us, Jesus, I come before you now and I just admit, like, we all struggle. We are incredibly human. I thank you that really the end of the story is always your mercy, always your grace. That even those painful times are meant to draw us to you, to press us to you, to break our bad habits and have renewed habits in your grace. Help us to do that. Help us to be with you and like you and for you because you are so for us. We thank you for your grace and provision and your good name.